You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is good to see you today. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. If you need a Bible underneath every three or four seats, you should be able to find one. And so feel free to use that one. If you, and if you don't have a good Bible at home, feel free to take that Bible with you. That would be our gift to you if you need um, a good Bible. And while you're turning there, uh, somebody left these keys at the little check-in station. I'm just going to leave these guys right here after the service. You can come and pick those up and take those home. Uh, okay, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, so uh, here's kind of my task this morning is to set us up to take communion at the end of our service today. And, uh, you know, normally we do communion at the beginning of every month, unless something is kind of weird or off at the beginning of the month. It's, it's the first of the you know, month, first Sunday of the month is when we do communion. And typically we will uh, uh, kind of put that at the end of our service um, and we don't linger over communion for a long time. Um, but today's going to be a little bit different. Periodically, we kind of take a step back and we linger over the point and the purpose of communion. We spend some time thinking about that in order to prepare us to think about communion. And today is going to be one of those sort of days where we're going to linger over um, the purposes of communion, what God has for us in a, in a morning like this. And we're going to do some thinking on, on those sorts of things. So to do that, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 11. This is a really popular passage dealing with communion. And I, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse today. Um, rather than doing that today, I'm going to pick out the two main ideas from, from this section. And I want to just try to bring to light those two main ideas for you. And my hope in doing that is that this morning we would all leave here with a greater appreciation for the grace of God found in Jesus. That's my hope for you this morning. It's my hope for me this morning is that Jesus would be bigger and brighter to us when we leave than when we you know, first came in. So with that said, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, and you might just underline this word, in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And here it comes again, remembrance of me. So I want to highlight two big ideas, and here's the first big idea. When you're thinking communion, here's one of the big ideas of what it is about, what it's for, what the Lord is trying to do with communion, why it is that we would have a morning like this where we're going to take communion together, we're going to dip the bread in the juice, have this moment together. And here's the first word, the first big idea is remembrance. That in communion, the Lord is asking us to remember some things. Now, just a couple of observations about your memory. Because I think a lot of us, just like most things in our life, we take it so for granted. Your memory is a precious gift from God to you. Think of all the things that you could not enjoy right now in your life if you didn't have a functioning memory. Now just think about that for a minute. See, like your memory is your ability to store an event, a person, place, or thing, to, to store that in your mind. And then when you need it later on, to go back and retrieve that moment and then to relive that moment. Now that is a grace from God. That is a mercy from God that God grants us with a memory. I mean, th there are some memories in my life that are just burned into my brain. 
So if I think about the, the moment God saved me, my conversion moment, when I went from death to life, that, that moment is burned into my you know, little brain as a seventh grader. When I think of marriage, the, the moment I was married to Laura, that, that moment of our wedding, that moment is forever burned into my brain. And when I think of that first delivery room experience, that will forever be burned in my brain, right? I mean, this is a grace from God that we can retrieve these moments and, and relive those moments. It's a grace from God. Now, in the Old Testament, there's many times when the Lord would, would say something to the effect of the people of Israel, you need to mark this moment so that you will remember it. You need to do something so that you'll remember this moment. So the Lord has them do that in all sorts of, of situations. One of the most popular in the Old Testament is with the Passover meal. So if you remember the Passover meal, this is the moment where Jesus is busting the people of Israel out of Egypt. And the night that that is happening, they take a Passover meal, kind of symbolizing this moment where this angel of God that's going to wreak havoc and bring wrath to the people of, of Egypt is going to pass over the doors of, of the people of Israel. And in light of that moment, the people of Israel allow, or the people of Egypt allow the people of Israel to, to go free from them. This is the moment of God busting them out of their slavery. Now, just picture the moment then. From that point forward, after that, that, that huge moment of redemption, God frees the people of Israel from Egypt. Every year, post that moment, the people of Israel would, would celebrate the Passover meal again. They would eat the exact same meal in the next year. The next year, they would eat the exact same meal again. The next year, they would eat the exact same meal again. And on and on, this would go year after year after year. Now, imagine the moment when a family sits down. And one of the sons or daughters looks at the dad and says, man, dad, why are we eating this meal again? I am sick of this. We do this year after year after year. Well, what do we keep doing the same meal for? Now, what would the, the response from the dad be? He, I think it would go something like this. That there's a reason that we're doing the same meal year after year after year. It's because you are very prone to forget things that we don't want you to forget. We want a moment where we can think about these things again, where we can remember these things again. And the reason we're doing this meal is because we don't ever want you to forget this moment in our people's past when God freed us from tyranny and slavery. We don't ever want you to forget that. We don't want you to forget this moment when God rained down these plagues on Egypt to the point when they looked at us and said, please, will you go? We don't want you to forget this moment when there's a sea in front of us. There's an army behind us. We're about to be slaughtered. And all of a sudden, God parts the sea and we walk through on dry land. We don't ever want you to forget these moments in our people's past when we're out in the wilderness and we're starving to death. And all of a sudden, God starts raining down bread from heaven. We don't want you to forget these things. That's the reason that we're doing this meal is because we want you to remember these wonderful acts of God that show the power and the faithfulness of God to his people. Okay, now let's fast forward to our day and age. Picture the moment when a person walks into a church like this and they hear that we're about to do communion. We're about to do a meal together. We're about to take bread, dip it in some juice, and we're gonna eat it together. And it's like many things that we do. It's just weird and a little bit awkward, right? Baptism's a lot like that. I mean, there's just things that we do that when a person just walks in and they see it for the first time, it would just put in them a sense of like, that's a little bit strange. So imagine them looking at us. We're about to dip the bread in the juice and eat it together. And imagine them looking and saying, what in the world are you doing that for? That is weird. Now, what would the answer be to that? The answer is, 
We do that because as we gather and as we, as we take communion together, as we dip the bread in the juice and eat it, we are reminding one another of something we are all so prone to forget, namely the good news of Jesus. That's the reason that we're doing communion. It's a moment where we get to remember. We get to pull off the shelf something we're very prone to forget. We get to remember it and we get to relive it. it we're reminding one another in a, mo- in a morning like this, we're reminding one another of the good news of Jesus. That God has sent his beloved son, Jesus, to live a perfect life in place of our very imperfect life. That God, the father sent Jesus, God, the son, to die on a cross for us. He's the one man and the only man that can actually say he died an innocent death, an undeserved death. He died undeservedly in our place, in place of us who deserved that death. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, showing God's power over Satan, sin, and death. That's what we're getting to remind one another of, that all those who put their faith in Jesus are now brought into the family of God. God now looks at them like they're his kids, that we are now made right with God. All the condemnation, all the wrath is sucked out of our relationship. Nothing but warm, fatherly affection is left. We're getting to remind ourselves of these things. We're getting to remind ourselves of things like Romans 3, 23 through 24. Paul says it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, just a, um, a helpful pointer here. There are a lot of people who memorize Romans 3.23 without memorizing Romans 3.24. That's a bad thing. You want to make sure you get verse 24 in there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24. And, that's not where it leaves us, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Communion is a moment where we get to remember that. That in Jesus, we are justified. Justified, that that term justification in the Bible, it's the Bible's way of addressing that very deep and innate question that you ask all the time and that I ask all the time. It's this question. Am I really okay? Now, I don't know how that question comes out in your life, but you just need to bank on this. You're asking that question. Do I really measure up? When the dust settles and the smoke clears, am I really gonna be all right? The the big question behind all of those smaller questions is, is is God really gonna be okay with me? And the the word justification, this idea that in Jesus we're justified, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're justified. It's telling us this. It's answering that question that we're all asking like this. For all those in Jesus, the answer to your question, am I gonna be okay when I stand before God is yes. You're gonna be okay when you stand before God. Not because you're okay, but because Jesus is okay. That now God looks at you and when he looks at you, he no longer sees all of your sin and where you fall short. He sees the perfect record of Jesus in your place. That's what we get to remind one another of. That deep question, am I okay, is satisfied in Jesus. Yes, because of Jesus, you're gonna be okay. In mornings like this, we get to remind ourselves of passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In those first three verses, Paul is describing our condition pre-grace. Pre-grace, this is our condition. Here's the condition. When you come out of the womb, when you are born, you are born into. You're born into a state where, although your physical heart is beating, spiritually, you are flatlined. Spiritually, you are unresponsive to God. We're incapable of responding to God in ways that would honor God and glorify God. We're absolutely incapable. This is what the Bible means when it says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. It means you don't have the capacity to do what you need to do for God. You don't have the capacity to respond to God in the way that would be honoring to God. You only have the capacity to rebel against God. This is the the sort of condition we're all born into. Pre-grace, we are dead in our sin. We are rebelling from God. We are running from God as fast as we can. That is our pre-grace condition. And our pre-grace condition, here is how God responds to us. Our rebellion, our flesh, our living the way we wanna live. God responds to us by saying, you are now children of wrath. That there will be a day where you and your rebellion are gonna be on a collision course with my wrath and the day is coming where those two things meet and you're going to lose. You're going to be eternally ruined in that moment. This is our pre-grace condition. Then you get to verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, aren't we grateful for the mercy of God that treats us so kindly in our sins? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we're unresponsive to God, even when we're running in the opposite direction as fast as we can, even when we're dead in our trespasses, God who is rich in mercy because of how much he loved us, this God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We're dead in our sin. We have barricaded ourselves from God, but God, because of his rich mercy and compassion and grace, he breaks through those barricades in his son, Jesus. And at the cost of his beloved son, Jesus, he breathes life into our hearts. Now we can respond to God. Now we can put our faith in Jesus. Now we can actually run to God. But God, because he's so rich in mercy. I I love this big biblical language. He takes our heart of stone, totally at odds with God, hostile toward God. And he gives us a heart of flesh that loves God, that has desires for God, that wants God. We're reminding ourselves of a God who does that this morning. Takes our dead hearts and makes them alive. We're reminding ourselves of a God who Romans 8.1 says this about In light of the good news of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I read that, that just sounds too good to be true. When I read that, it makes me want to ask the question, but God, don't you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? How can you say that in light of who I am and what I've done? See, we're getting to remind ourselves that regardless of how bad our past is, grace is better. It's better. Regardless of how poor your performance has been in your past, grace makes the difference. 
We're getting to remind ourselves of these things that in Jesus, for all of those who are in Jesus, there is not one ounce of wrath left in God's heart toward you. I just think on that for a moment. This is what we're celebrating. When we dip the bread in the juice and we take communion this morning, we are celebrating that there is not one ounce of wrath left for all of those who are in Christ. The only thing left in God's heart is warm fatherly affection. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're getting to remind ourselves of, of good gospel news like Revelation 21.5. Then he sat on the throne and said, this is Jesus saying, Behold, I make all things new. Now you may not know this about you, but you long for that right there. There is a deep longing in the heart of every human being for everything that's broken to be made new. Um, we are watching Lord of the Rings with our older uh, kiddos. And there's this moment where Sam looks at Gandalf. And I don't know if you remember this moment. Gandalf, it looked like he had died, but he kind of comes back and he kind of shows himself to Sam again. And Sam looks at him and said, Gandalf, will everything sad become untrue? And here's the good news of Jesus. That is true. Everything sad, everything that's broken, everything that's bad in this world, there will be a day when all of those things become untrue. When God unwinds all of those things, everything sad, everything that's broken, and he brings them back together, pieces them back together in this beautiful mosaic that we're all going to stand in awe at someday. That everything broken in your life, everything broken in this world, God is saying to us, there will be a day where I take all that brokenness and make something beautiful out of it. Now that is what we're remembering on a day like today. Now here's the thing. This is why it's so important that we have moments like this where we remind ourselves of these things. Here's the reason. Our memories don't work the way we want them to work, do they? Do you find this to be true about you? You just don't remember things like you want to remember them. I mean, I, the problem with all of our memories is that it's like, you know, wet concrete. It, it's written on the concrete and then here comes the rain and it washes it away. We just don't remember things like we want to remember them. I, it's like you can remember it right now in this moment and then you wake up Monday morning and you just forget it all. Do you know that experience? You're living Tuesday and you've forgotten it all. I, I love how C.S. Lewis describes this. When he's talking about this idea of how, you know, it's so hard to remember these things. He says, it's like when you wake up on Monday morning, your thoughts, and particularly your godless thoughts. He says, your godless thoughts, you wake up on Monday morning, all of those godless thoughts rush upon you like a, a pack of wild animals. Now, I love that because I think that's true. That's my experience. The man, you, you, we gather with the church like this in the moment and we remember something and then you wake up on Monday morning and all of this, the godlessness that is in you, all of these godless thoughts begin to rush upon you. I mean, they begin to converge upon you like a pack of wild animals bent on your destruction. See, it is so easy for us to live our lives like practical atheists. As if God does not exist as if God is not our father, as if we are not his sons and daughters, as if he does not care for us, as if he has not pledged all of his power and all of his wisdom and all of his strength to be working for our good. It is so easy to live in such a way where we totally forget that. 
But communion, a morning like this, is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves that those things are not true. God is a father. We are his sons and daughters. He does love us. He is for us. He is with us. He'll never abandon us. It's a morning where we get to remember those things. Where we get to remember those things that we so desperately need to remember. So that's key word number one, remember. And here comes key word number two. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, when it comes to to taking communion in an unworthy manner, I don't think that has much at all to do with the mechanics of taking communion. Like, how are you going to do it? What's going to be the form of communion? Are you going to like do the bread first and then do the juice? Are you going to dip the bread? in? I don't think that's the heart of what Paul is saying here. The heart is not the mechanics of taking communion. The, the, the heart of the issue is our heart. How are we doing right here in taking communion? And he goes on to describe this. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And the Bible is going to lay a seriousness over communion. If you go on to verse 30, he's going to say, This is why some of you are ill, you're weak, and some of you have died because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. You're doing this wrongly. You're doing this without examining yourself. You're doing this without taking an honest look at your own heart being honest about what you see there and dealing with that. So this idea of examining ourselves is taking us kind of this second kind of key idea with communion. You might call it repentance. If, the, if key idea number one is remembering, here's the second kind of key idea in communion. When it comes to the purposes of communion, how to ready ourselves for communion, repentance is the key to readying ourselves to take it. Repentance. Now, when it comes to repentance, there's a lot of confusion about repentance. Repentance so often gets confused with, I got caught in my sin and I feel really bad about that sin. I got caught in my sin and I feel embarrassed about it. I got caught in my sin and I feel a lot of shame with my sin. Those things can lead you to repentance, but those things are not repentance. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes repentance. This will be on the screen for you. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin. A mourning that we have committed that sin. And a resolution to forsake that sin. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character. Which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. Look back at that first sentence there. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. When you're talking repentance, it is this deep change of heart and mind. We begin to see God differently, we begin to see our sin differently, and we begin to see ourselves differently. It is this moment where We go from loving the sin that we're doing to actually hating that sin and doing everything we can to put that sin to death. This is repentance. Now, when we're talking about repentance, I mean, we we could talk for days about this. It is the central component of the Christian life. 
Repentance is the way you enter the Christian life, and it is the way you make all progress forward as a Christian. Repentance is that important to the Christian life. And we could talk for days about it, but let me just pull out three core components in, in terms of repentance. Three things that just lie right at the heart of what makes repentance repentance. Three things. Number one, the first thing is conviction. Conviction. Conviction is this grace from God where we actually begin to see sin for what it is. It is the moment where sin no longer seems normal to us. It no longer seems like something we're okay with kind of cohabitating with. It's that moment where we see that like, this is serious, that God's serious about it, that I should be serious about it, that sin is actually evil. It's the moment where we see that. See, you know, conviction is this moment where we begin to have new eyes for life, where God grants us with the ability to see sin like he sees sin. Okay, now when you're thinking about conviction, the aim of conviction is not just to make you feel bad. That's not the point. The point is to help you see what really is bad. That's what conviction is about. That's what it's for. It's, it's God giving us eyes to see what he calls really bad. And for us to begin to agree with that, to begin to live in that. See, like if you want an image for, for conviction, it's the moment you go into the doctor's office and you think you just kind of have a slight headache. You can just kind of sleep it off and you're going to be okay. Maybe a few Tylenol and you'll be all right. And the doctor looks back at you and says, a headache is not your problem. A brain tumor is your problem. That's your issue. And it's so serious that we've got to cut it out right now. Conviction is that moment where you go from seeing sin as just kind of a headache that you can deal with to a brain tumor that's got to be decisively dealt with. That's conviction. Listen to my friend Ray Ortland describe conviction. I love this paragraph that I'm about to read to you. Listen to how he describes this. He says, Conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, and letting the infection pour out. That's conviction. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. It's an injury. It is painful. You see things about you that you don't like to see about you. I see things about me that makes me really uncomfortable when conviction lands on me. So it's an injury, but it's a health-giving injury. If we ever want to be healthy human beings, human beings that flourish, it takes God injuring us with conviction so that we can see appropriately what needs to be healed in us. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see and the truth we're afraid to admit and the guilt we'd, we'd prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty. Now just linger over that for a moment. Virtually every one of us in the room are compulsively dishonest with our sin. We just lie about it. And conviction is that moment where God so confronts us with our sin that we can no longer lie about it. Conviction of sin is a severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty, our willful blindness, our favorite excuses. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. 
It's sobering to think that many of us have walked in the room, I have walked in the room, with sin that is comfortably undisturbed in me. I've just kind of made peace with it. I'm just kind of okay with it. Conviction is the moment where we can no longer be okay with it. Conviction of sin is our escape from sadness to joy. Do, do you want to be a joyful person? I want to be more joyful. I don't know if you want that. I want that. Do you know where that's found in the Bible? In repentance. That's the pathway to being able to rejoice. Conviction of sin is our escape from sadness to joy, from attending church to worship. How many of you would actually like to stop attending church and actually come to church and actually worship Jesus? So I want more of that personally. I don't know if you want more of that. I want more of that. Conviction of sin is what ushers us into that. From attending church to worship, from faking it to authenticity, Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over our wounds is life. How many of us could use more life today? Conviction of sin is where that begins. Conviction of sin, God laying open a wound in our soul with the forgiveness of God, then pouring into that wound is where life is found. This is conviction. So can we just take a moment here, just right there where you are. Will you just ask the, the Lord right now, if there's any areas that need conviction in your life, ask the Lord right now through his Holy Spirit to show you those things. Ask the Lord right now to bring conviction to the places in you where you have made peace with sin. Just ask, ask the Lord to do that today. So repentance begins with conviction and then it goes to confession where we're actually honest with God and other people. Not just God, but God and other people where we're inviting other people in to that conviction. See, there is a way of saving face when you just, you know, you're just honest with God that being honest with other people will not allow and in a moment of confession, being honest with God and other people, it's the moment where we stop making excuses for our sin. It's the moment where we stop trying to save face. It, confession is the moment where we stop trying to be better than we are, to appear better than we are. It's that moment where we stop trying to do that and we're actually honest, where we actually own our own dysfunction. We own our own brokenness. We're honest about our own brokenness before God and other people. That's confession. And that is a key component of repentance. You cannot have repentance apart from confessing sin to God and others. You just can't. It's a part of the package of repentance. When the Holy Spirit begins to convict us, here's what conviction will do in us. It will overpower our want to save face. And it will create in us a capacity to be honest with God and others, regardless of what it costs us. That's confession. Now, I want you to just hear really briefly uh, these couple of statements. Because I think this is one of those things as a church family that we need to come to grips with. Far too many people in far too many churches never admit to anything. I'm going to say that one more time. Far too many church, uh, people in far too many churches never admit to anything. 
the overriding controlling force in their life is saving face, appearing better than they are, keeping up kind of those external appearances as if they have it all together when they know they don't deep down. Far too many churches and people in those churches just don't admit to anything. And listen, hear this. If we're not admitting to things, that's a problem because we've got things we need to be admitting to. If we're not admitting to things, here's what it means. It doesn't mean that we're like keeping up to God's perfect standards. It means that we're just not being honest about how we fell in, in keeping up with them. That's what it means. And listen, if we will not admit anything, just hear what that, just do the play. Let's tease this out. Here's what that means. If we will not admit to things, if we will not own our failures, if we will not lay down our incessant need to, to save face and own our failures, if we will not do that, here's what we're saying. Jesus, stay out. See, not admitting to things is saying, Jesus, I am barricading myself to you and I don't want you in here. And when a church says, I don't want you in here, here's what that means for them. They may not be dead right now, but they are on the slow descent to their death. Just check Revelation 2 for a reference on that. When a church says, I will not admit to anything, I'm going to keep up appearances. I'm going to fake it. I'm going to pretend. When a church goes there for long enough, they're saying, Jesus, I don't want you in here. And when a church says for long enough, Jesus, I don't want you in here, Jesus will not let anyone else in there. And that church is on the slow descent to their death. Stonegate, let's never do that. Can we just make a pact right now? Let's just don't do that. Let's let go of our need to have it all together. Let's be able to celebrate in our weakness, knowing that in our weakness, Jesus looks really, really wonderful. And let's admit to the things that need to be admitted to. I mean, let's have the courage to like actually be honest with one another, to be honest before God, and to confess our sin, to stop making excuses for it, to, to stop justifying it in all of these, you know, this rich and robust way to let, let go of all of those things and to be honest before God and one another. That's confession. And I, I mean, I just can't imagine that there aren't many of us who need confession this morning. There are many of us who I, who I bet you, if I like took your circle of friends, top two, three, four people in your life, and I just said, hey, do you have any idea what's going on in them? They would have no idea because you never admit to anything. And this would be a wonderful morning for you to let that go and to own your stuff and to confess that, to be honest with the Lord and with others. So there's conviction. We gain an awareness of our sin. There's confession. We actually deal honestly with our sin. And then there's covenant. And covenant is where we actually make a plan to forsake our sin, to deal decisively with our sin, to put our sin to death, to no longer cohabitate with our sin, to run from that sin, to do away with that sin, to resolve and to develop a plan for how you're putting that sin to death in your life. That's covenant. See, and I think what happens for a lot of us is, I mean, and I just hear this play out in a lot of weird ways when people talk about just how they're doing. There's this, there's this moment of recognizing, man, this thing that I've been doing, it's not just like a bad mistake, it's sin in the Bible. There's that moment of conviction. And then we get to confession. They're actually being honest before God and one another in their sin. But what's missing so often is covenant. What's missing so often is now I'm actually developing a plan in my life where by the grace of God, this sin is going to die in me. 
That seems to just be strangely missing so often in repentance. That we love to celebrate God's forgiving grace in our life. And that is a beautiful thing. But we so often forsake God's transforming grace in our life that actually empowers a new way of living, actually empowers putting sin to death in our life. See, you don't have repentance if you just have conviction and confession. Repentance is conviction, confession, and then covenant, making a resolved effort to put that sin to death. Okay, now here's how I wanna end this morning. I'm gonna end by just reading through a section of Galatians chapter five. And I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to to just use this passage in your life this morning. And here is how I oftentimes pray before I read Galatians 5, in particular this passage of Galatians 5, is I'll just ask the Holy Spirit, Father, will you please use this passage to show me areas of my life where I am in need of repentance, conviction of sin, confession, and covenant. God, will you just... Will you just show me these things as we read this? So in light of praying that for you, and right now I just want to invite you to pray that, let let me read through starting in, in verse 16 of Galatians 5. Paul says this, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. Here's the reason why I know everyone in this room this morning is in need of repentance. The reason is because Paul says there is, if you're in Christ, the spirit of God is in you. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. It lives in you. It's become the controlling master of your heart. But that old man, that old sinful nature, the flesh, that part of you that's at war with God, that part of you, although he is dethroned in you, he is not yet destroyed. He's still in you. Right now, you have, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God in you and you have the flesh, that old person, that part of you that's at war with God. They're both in you and they are at war with one another so that you're doing a lot of things that you don't even want to do. You find yourself struggling with things that you wish you weren't struggling with. See, isn't it ironic that all of us are in a battle for our lives and that battle is not against someone else. It's against, with that, it's against that old person in us, that deformed, distorted flesh in us, that old sinful nature in us. That's where the battle is. And because I know that that part of us is still alive in me and in you, I know that it puts all of us this morning in desperate need for repentance. So they're at conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Here are the acts of the old you. That part of you that has been dethroned but not yet destroyed. That sinful nature, that old you that's still in you. Here are the things that it produces in our life that are contrary to what the Spirit of God is producing in our life. Here's a sampling of them. Start reading forward in verse 19. Sexual immorality. So that's fornication. That's any sort of sexual activity apart from marriage. One man and one woman. Anything outside of of that, of those boundaries is fornication. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Pornography would fit under sexual immorality. And I just know from personal experience and being friends with many of you in the room 
that this is something that virtually everyone in the room struggles with to, to varying degrees. Many of our ladies in the room struggle with this. So the question is, where is sexual immorality showing itself in your life? Where is it coming out in your life? And listen, this is one of the things about pornography that always uh, is interesting to me. It's just most people don't feel like it's a very big deal. And can, can I just remind you, it is a big deal to God. If you're in that frame of mind that right now says it's just not that big of a deal, what you need this morning is conviction to see that you think it's a headache when God thinks it's a brain tumor that will kill you. Sexual immorality. And then he goes on, and impurity. I think impurity has in a lot of ways, it's the action behind the, the uh, or it's the attitude behind the action of immorality. So, so it deals with your inner life. You, you, you know, it's the lingering look. It's lustful thoughts. It's your desires that have just gone crazy. I, I was reading in uh, Titus chapter one here just a couple of weeks ago, and I, I'm working through Titus with a few guys right now. And in chapter one, it deals with the qualifications of elders. And at one little part, it, it just makes this one little statement that an elder is to be a person, a pastor is to be a person who loves what is good. I mean, I, in that moment of reading that, it's like the Holy Spirit just stabbed me right in the heart as, as the Holy Spirit showed me just so many ways where I love what is not good. And do you see that in you? Where your desires have just gone crazy, where things that you should love, you don't love like you should love them. And things that you shouldn't love, man, you are all about those things. I mean, that, that is not just like a problem that you have. That is sin in us that needs to be repented of on a desire level, on an affections level. Sexual immorality and impurity, debauchery. That's not a, a word you probably use in like your everyday vocabulary, but it's kind of this word that would, um, that would describe just no restraint in your life, no self-control. Whatever you wanna do, that's what you do. You don't care what God says. You don't care what somebody else says. You just do whatever you want. That's debauchery. A total lack of self-restraint. I think as it plays itself out, it feels like this so often in people. It's, it gets to that point where they're like, man, I, I've just messed up so many times. I'm just gonna go all the way in. Are there any areas of your life where you just thrown up your hands and said, I'm just gonna stop fighting. I'm just gonna do what I want. I'm just gonna stop fighting against my desire. I'm just gonna do whatever. That's debauchery. That, that is sin in the Bible that needs to be repented of. He goes on, idolatry. An idol is anything that you love more than God, anything that you're looking to in your life to give you what only God can give you. And, and here's the, the strange thing about idols is so often they are the best of God's gifts. See, we're most likely to take the best of God's gifts to inflate those to a place in our life thinking that they can actually give us what God could give us. Things like marriage, things like kids, things like our family, things like our job, things like money and possessions, things like a hobby, things like your health. I mean, the list is long here. Where is idolatry playing itself out in your life? Where are you looking to things to give you what only God can? He goes on, witchcraft. And then he says, hatred. Hatred is wanting the absolute worst for someone else. You see hatred play out in Bitterness, and here's, how the, here's how, one of the ways you can know if you're bitter towards someone else. When you think about them, they have become a one-dimensional person in your life. There's no longer like bad in them and good, it's all bad. 
you're always gonna assume the worst about them. You're always gonna see through the grid that says they're doing the worst. That, that is hatred turned into bitterness. Is there anyone in your life where that's the way that you see them? God is inviting repentance, refreshment for you, life for you in repenting this morning. Discord, this is what hatred looks like practically in our life, discord. It's, it's, discord is just warring against people. Is there anyone in your life right now, you're just at war with them and you're just going at it and you're okay with going at it with them. This is discord. And by the way, I think we would do well before we take communion to deal with that. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if, if you find yourself at the altar and you know you have a brother that has something against you, but before you try to do something with me at the altar, you should probably go get this right with your brother before you do that. And I just can't help but think that many of us need to make phone calls before we take communion this morning. We need to clear stuff up. We need to seek forgiveness from people. We need to take the first step in living at peace with everyone before we take communion. He goes on, discord. Then he says, jealousy. You just can't celebrate with people. Like something good happens to them and you can't applaud that and celebrate that. You can't rejoice with people who are rejoicing. You're just kind of upset that something good is happening to them. Jealousy. Fits of rage. This is what, you know, hatred and, and jealousy produce in our life. Just moments of unrestrained anger. And listen, one moment of unrestrained anger can take a lifetime to undo. The opposite of unrestrained anger is patience. I wonder how many of us need the Spirit of God to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit of patience. Being, here's what patience is. It's the ability to suffer for a long, 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 long time with another person. How many of us need that this morning? Fits of rage. And then he goes on, selfish ambition. Ambition is not a bad thing. Ambition is actually a good and a godly thing. It's that word in front of ambition that makes it bad. It's when it's selfish ambition. So just think about your life. When you think about the dreams for your life, the hopes for your life, so many people just think about themselves. It's selfish ambition. It's what can I get? What can I do? How can I make my life comfortable? It's all selfish ambition. Nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with the glory of God. Nothing to do with the mission of God. Nothing to do with the good of other people. I think a lot of people one day when they stand before God are going to have deep regret that their life was saturated with not just ambition, but selfish ambition. Everything in their life ended on them. Money ended on them. Every dollar that they got, their thinking was, how can I pad my life and make it more comfortable? How they spend their time is, is all through the, the lens of a selfish sort of event in them. And maybe we need to ask the Lord for, for a redeemed ambition. Dissensions and factions. Rather than being a person who is like glue between people, you just drive the wedge further. In that moment where somebody's gossiping, you listen to it as opposed to putting a stop to it. That's all dissensions and factions, envy, just having petty disagreements with people, drunkenness. And I want to linger over this just for a moment because I think that there's probably a lot of people in this room this morning who who have a problem with alcohol, not because they periodically drink alcohol, but because they drink it in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons. They're drinking it to, to self-medicate, to try to numb themselves to something. 
They drink it in a, in, a, in a hope to kind of, where they're sad to kind of make them okay. They drink it in an effort to get from alcohol what only God can give them. And when we're doing that, the Bible has a word for that. It's called sin that needs to be repented of. And I just can't but, but help think that there's a lot, of, a lot of us right now who are violating that who need deep repentance in that area. And then he goes on and says, orgies and the like. And that last phrase, and the like, is just kind of a junk drawer category. Like, and you can just imagine all the other things that would fit in the, in the category of the works of the flesh. Things like apathy, things like complacency, things like dulled affections for God, things like being off mission. We haven't talked about Jesus with anyone in the last week, the last month, the last year of our life. We don't think about our neighborhood in terms of the mission of God. We don't think about our neighborhood in terms of like, God has me there for a reason to be salt and light. Gossip. Um, this could be men not leading their families. Ladies not letting men lead their families. It could be pride. It could be greed and a lack of contentment. All of those are works of the flesh and we could like keep the list going for a long, long time. Here's the point though. The, the point is just getting us to a place of like being aware of where is it that repentance is needed in our life? What does it look like to deal decisively with our sin? Where is it this morning that you are in deep need of conviction, of confession, and of covenant? And let me end by saying this. Here is one of the number one enemies in a moment like this. One of the number one enemies that rob what God wants to do in a moment like this is a way of thinking that goes like this. Why do today what we can do tomorrow? Why deal with this sin today when we can do it in a week from now? Why deal with this sin today when we can do it in a year? Why would we get you know, about this work right now as opposed to like later on? Surely there will be time later. An old Puritan named Thomas Boston wrote a book on repentance. And at one point he gave six reasons why people don't repent. Here's reason number six. Reason number six is the hope of finding the work of repentance easier afterwards. Just procrastinating. Just why do today what you can do, to that, that issue. Listen to how he addresses that. And I'll finish with this. He says, that mindset is directly opposite to the gospel call. The call to repent is like the call to quench fire in a house. Imagine if you went home today and you walked in your front door and there's a fire in your living room. Would your attitude be, uh, you know, we could probably get to that fire next week. No, that would not be your attitude. You would do whatever it takes to get the fire out right now. There would, everything else in your life would be put on hold to deal with that fire. He's saying that's how repentance ought to look for us. It must presently be done. The longer you continue in sin, your spiritual death advances more upon you. Every sin sets you a step farther from God is a new bar in the way of your peace with God. Every sin that you just allow to remain in there strengthens your natural enmity and hostility against God. It alienates you more and more from the life of God. And where does this end but in your soul's ruin? You wanna put off dealing with sin? Here's what you can expect, the ruin of your soul. Oh, and he goes on to say, oh, just to empathize with us. Are we not far enough on this way of ruin already? By delay of repentance, he says, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. You want to put it off today? Here's what you should expect. Tomorrow, it will be more difficult to repent. Next week, even more difficult. He goes on to finish like this. The longer ice is frozen, the harder it is to be broken.
Let's pray together. So I'm going to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. And, and here is where communion takes us first. It takes us to a place of faith in Jesus. To the question of, has there been a moment where you have turned from your sin, thrown your life upon the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then come to God with the empty hands of faith, asking him to save you? Asking him to redeem you. Asking him to bring you into his family. See, re communion requires us being right with God if we're going to take it rightly. And being right with God begins with repentance. This is the way into life with God. This is the way that we are saved. This is the way that we enter into the family of God. It's this moment in our life, this, this, you know, this decisive moment in our life where we turn from sin for the first time and throw our life upon Jesus and God in his grace rescues us. If that has not happened, that's the first thing that needs to happen today. And this is such a great day for that. You could walk into this room dead in your sin and walk out of this room in the family of God. The arms of God are wide open to you for that this morning. So if that's you, you've been you know, kicking the tires on Jesus, you've been asking questions, you've been investigating these things, this morning is a great morning to push your chips in and to throw up your arms and say, God, I am yours because of Jesus, save me. And if that's you this morning, make sure you grab one of those cards under your seat, fill out that black section and, and check that box on responding to God for the first time. We would love to follow up with you, rejoice and celebrate with you and to begin to walk with you down that road. Now for others in the room, this is the moment where the Holy Spirit needs to do work on us needs to show us the areas of our heart where repentance is needed. Where conviction, confessing our sin to God and before we leave to one another, covenanting, resolving to make a break with sin, to put our sin to death, So this is your time to, to, to do some business with God, to allow the Spirit of God to appropriate the good news of Jesus in your heart. And so, Father, would you do that? Father, would you show us areas of our heart that need to be repented of? God, will you show us sin in us that needs to be dealt with? God, will you give us the courage to admit it? So Father, help us. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.